You're listening to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. Small business owners and farmers are protesting the green WTO and NAFTA are transnational forms of autocratic governance that support their own free trade. Seattle has never seen anything like it. Welcome back to Rethinking Trade, where we don't just talk about trade policy, we fight to change it. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined once again by our in-house trade expert, Lori Wallach. So, Lori, today marks one year since the start of these mass protests in Hong Kong against an extradition law that was widely seen as opening the door to people in Hong Kong getting prosecuted and imprisoned in China. And recently, these protests flared up again because of a new law, national security law, that China is imposing in Hong Kong. And as we both know, the U.S.-China and U.S.-Hong Kong trade relationship have been a central part of that story. On this show, we're going to talk about Hong Kong's special status in relation to the U.S. We're going to talk about the protests and how this all has to do with our trade policies. So first, Lori, can you describe Hong Kong's special status in relation to the U.S. and, and what are some of the trade issues that have been involved in the recent discussions around Hong Kong? So Hong Kong has a special treatment in the trade world. Both Hong Kong has its own seat at the World Trade Organization, separate from China, and also in U.S. law, there's a statute called the Hong Kong Relations Act, which was passed in 1992, which basically guarantees that as long as China continues to treat Hong Kong with the promised free speech and free unions and other rights that it committed to in its 1997 agreement when Hong Kong was handed over to China from its previous status with England, as long as that stays in effect, Hong Kong gets treated basically as a separate entity. And what that means practically is that, for instance, when China is judged to be dumping products at below the cost of production and a penalty is put, an anti-dumping duty is put on Chinese imports, imports from Hong Kong don't get hit. Or China has its own tariff schedule, Hong Kong has a different tariff schedule, what the border taxes are. And if there's a penalty, like the Section 301 China tariffs, products from Hong Kong don't get hit with that, just products from China. But there is a condition to that, which is every year, the U.S. government has to certify that Hong Kong is, in fact, being given those special rights and treatments that China committed to. And if that certification ends, then the 1992 Hong Kong Relations Act allows a U.S. president to basically withdraw all that special treatment. And that would effectively mean tariffs, higher tariffs on goods from Hong Kong, limits on investment from corporations incorporated in Hong Kong, a variety of other penalties would then be able to be imposed. And so recently, Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo made this move, which is something a lot of people in Hong Kong seem to be supporting, even though it's venturing into an unknown territory. Maybe you could talk about what that maneuver was, what it looked like. So part of the Hong Kong Relations Act requires a certification every year by the Secretary of State that, in fact, Hong Kong is being treated autonomously with respect to free speech rights and independent unions and the like. And if that certification is done, then the special treatment of the Hong Kong Relations Act of preferential treatment is continued. 
For the first time since the act was passed in 1992, the Secretary of State, Pompeo, did not certify autonomy, and in fact, notably didn't. It was big news. And so now the president could, at any point, start to effectively impose detrimental policies, detrimental pressure onto Hong Kong, and therefore pressure onto China. And one of the things I'd love to hear from you is, because I know you've been talking organizer to organizer with activists in Hong Kong, I'm interested in hearing more details about what's going on in the protests there, because I do know the, you know, the motto of the protests has been, if we bleed, you bleed, which is to say to China, mainland China, if you cut off our rights, um, then we're happy to have economic damage befall you. And that seems maybe to be part of the reason why the protest movement is happy the U.S. decertified and maybe wants Trump to actually follow through and do something that creates economic pain for China, which so far has not happened with respect to the Hong Kong actions. It's been shameful, actually, not surprising in the least, because in the whole year of these protests, basically Trump has signaled he's with the president of China, Xi, as compared to with the protesters. But I'm curious, Ryan, what what you've picked up as far as the why folks on the streets want the pressure and also how those protests are going. One thing to keep in mind is that there's been, you know, one year of sustained protests in Hong Kong. Some of these protests have been absolutely massive, you know, estimates of over a million people on several different occasions. There's been lots of violence from the police. Some of the protests have been pretty violent as well. There's been fights between, uh, you know, citizens in the streets. There's been fights in parliament. And I'm, I mean, fights, fist fights, violence, people hitting each other with sticks you know, it's a very significant situation. And a year of that will obviously will harden people, you know. And so I think the vibe right now, generally, from a lot of groups I've spoken with, both from, you know, the more left wing progressive groups, more middle of the road groups, and even what people say from the, a lot of the business community seems to be a general alignment on some big topics, such as cut off the special status, see what that can do because we don't have any other options right now, agreeing with sanctioning uh, targeted officials. There's also been, you know, this comes after years, you know, in 2014, there were huge protests again in Hong Kong. There were big protests back in 2003. This isn't a just a recent development. But I think what's new is China's place in the world, the U.S.'s place in the world. You know, there's big questions right now about what the future looks like. So I think a lot of folks in Hong Kong are asking that question amongst themselves. One thing that happened at the end of last year, so these protests began on this day a year ago in June, and within a few weeks it became clear that this extradition law wasn't going to fly, so it was suspended. I think about a month later it was actually removed, and then a few months later it was completely removed. It was off the books, so it was a pretty big victory, but the protests didn't stop because they saw what was coming, and they're living in a place where their legislator is only partially elected, Part of it is actually appointed by members of the corporate sector, which is really interesting. And the results of that have been a pro-Beijing legislator for a very long time. That changed in November. The elections in Hong Kong really swept pro-democracy people into parliament. And it became clear to China that their attempts to pass any sort of an extradition law or any sort of laws governing activity in Hong Kong, such as criticizing China, wasn't going to fly. So they just made this move and said, well, 
were making a declaration in the name of national security, which under Hong Kong's relationship with China, they're technically allowed to do. But that national security, as many people in Hong Kong would tell you, could involve and actually does involve criticizing the Chinese national anthem, uh, mocking the flag. It, there's actually a strange overlap between the streets, you know, grassroots protest organizations, NGOs, student groups, and people from the business sector, people from certain companies, because there's a lot of interests involved in this. There's a lot of people worried about what extradition could mean for them. So a lot of people talked about the, quote, white gloves in Hong Kong, meaning Hong Kong's role as a money laundering hub for elites from China. So there's a lot of people who have a stake in the game. And that's why I think we've seen such a coalescing of people around these specific issues, such as cutting off the special status. I think it's incredibly powerful and inspiring having watched what's happened in Hong Kong. The stakes are extremely high. Hong Kong is this tiny thumbnail of land totally surrounded by China, officially controlled by China, by a government that is notorious for not having rule of law or rights for citizens. And yet you have seen this incredible social solidarity of, as you said, a very diverse set of interests, many of them for protecting specific rights and a way of life of free speech and freedom, some certainly protecting commercial interests because Hong Kong is operating commercially very differently than China, but unified in a way that beat a head of state officially and appointed from Beijing, Beijing sympathetic leader, Carrie Lam, and made her withdraw outrageous policy proposals. So it is both inspiring what they accomplished and then kind of crushing to see how Beijing just autocratically imposed a new measure, which is what would go into effect, that literally would make a lot of what everyone listening to this podcast and you, Ryan, and I do every day, a crime, which is criticizing the government so that you could be swooped up out of your home and dragged off to a not real court in Beijing and then chucked into jail indefinitely in Beijing. And for folks in Hong Kong, which is such a different culture than in Beijing, it's a life or death matter. And it strikes me at this moment where in the United States for tens of millions of Americans who have also an incredibly inspiring way taken to the streets over a life and death matter, the historic structural racism in this country, it is really, really hard and difficult, scary confrontations between very established powers and people's aspirations to fight for their rights. And there is a way in which the situations are entirely different, the scenarios, but also are both really inspiring examples of people power. And having spent a considerable amount of time in Hong Kong with friends there, but also during the WTO ministerial and saw the very powerful protest movements there. The year of endless protests, in a way, is probably a foreshadow of the continuing work in the U.S. as we are also in a long-term fight for basic rights. 
Absolutely. And I think a way to look at Hong Kong, there's two things. It comes as part of this wave of global, really unprecedented protests and shifting political events around the world, especially since the economic crisis. And it also comes in this time where China is asserting itself globally as a real power. And Hong Kongers are looking at that and they're looking at their place in the world in between these two superpowers. And they're taking initiative to try to create their future in, in the way they want it rather than it being dictated from outside. And I think that that's kind of ties into stuff that you've been writing about and talking about recently, especially sparked by COVID-19 and the pandemic, but also it's been coming for a while. There are big shifts happening in the world and we're in this moment where new ideas or even old ideas that are still good ideas have a new place at the table and we're pushing some of those in the trade world. Maybe you could just talk about how the situation now with Hong Kong and the U.S. and China, what that says about conversations you've been having about a progressive approach to China and how our trade policies with China need to change. I think that as we look at the economic relationship between the U.S. and China, it cannot be divorced from the broader geopolitical dynamic between the U.S. and China, which as you've described is sort of a battle of different views about how society and economies should be organized, neither of which are entirely inspiring. However, by many orders of magnitude, the situation in China with respect to basic rights for people to express their opinions, protest, organize for themselves in their workplaces as unions or as individuals fighting for control of their communities, of the land that gets grabbed up from under them, to fight against pollution. All of those basic fundamental rights are denied in the Chinese system, are criminalized. There's no rule of law. And there are a couple hundred very powerful families who are integrated in the Chinese ruling government system through the Communist Party in China and through the economic system, through a lot of very government-affected and controlled, some of them, many of them, owned companies. And as we think forward about what a better relationship between the U.S. and China would entail, the economics of it includes something that has to do with us, not China which is the COVID crisis has shown that the hyper-globalization of the economy through decades of corporate rig trade agreements has gotten rid of the redundancy of production and has created extremely long, brittle supply chains, which are too reliant on one country, which happens to be China. But if that one country were England, it would still be a problem. This lesson is... We need redundant supply chains in different parts of the world. We need some domestic capacity so that when countries reasonably are looking to take care of their own citizens and send their own supplies to domestic needs, we have some ability in critical goods to make some portion of what we need so that we rebalance the way in the global economy production occurs so that we have more capacity domestically. We don't have to be totally self-reliant by any means, but some capacity. We cannot have a scenario where we don't make at all certain medicines and certain active pharmaceutical ingredients in a continental-sized country like the United States. And we need to diversify the supply chains and trade so that, heaven forbid, 
there is a natural disaster, a pandemic, whatever it is that knocks out production as it did in China, and we see a huge crash in imports, we don't end up quickly with major shortages that make our situation worse. But all of that aside, that's medium-term and long-term thinking. The short-term question is, is the U.S. going to actually do anything to protect people in Hong Kong? Or is President Trump just going to stand by and let the Beijing dictatorship crush free speech and democracy in Hong Kong? Rethinking Trade is produced by Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, where we don't just talk about trade policy, we fight to change it. Visit RethinkTrade.org today to get involved in our campaigns and help us fight for global economic justice.